0: Let us pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I love this morning's reading uh, from Romans chapter 6 because Paul asks us to consider the sacrament of baptism. Now, I remember when I went to Liberty, uh, they actually made us take an evangelism class and uh, so you had to go out, and your big project was you had to evangelize someone from the community. I'm sure the people who live in Lynchburg just love that project, that they make us do that. Um, but anyways, I remember during the class, uh, someone – I think one of the professors talked about in the 90s when George H.W. Bush was president. You know, he was Episcopalian, and they, they – uh, uh, some Christian uh, or, you know, news organization asked him, are you born again? And he said, well, I was baptized when I was a baby. To which the, the people in, that taught this class were aghast that he thought that that could be, mean being born again. But what we see today in our reading is that that actually is what being born again entails. It entails baptism. Now, I'm excited, and I think I have mentioned this last week because in a few weeks, the first week of August... Uh, We're going to have a couple of baptisms, and they're not just baptisms, they're baby baptisms, which are the best kind of baptisms. Um, Anybody can get baptized, of course, who's not been baptized, but it's especially beautiful when babies are baptized. Because it's more evident, the, the symbolism, that baptism is something which happens to us rather than something that we do. Because a baby didn't choose to be there, they're just there. And because they're there, we baptize them. Right? So um, it helps us understand the mystery a little bit better, I think. But I'm very excited about that. That's one of the great privileges of, of ministry. I mean, there are so many privileges uh, being a priest, but, but baptizing babies really is, is one of the best. I mean, one of the most special moments in my life was when I got to baptize Jude at the 2018 Easter Vigil at our parish in Virginia, and then, uh, and then Rowan on All Saints Day in 2020. Uh, two very beautiful days. In fact, I kind of get shivers just thinking about uh, the beauty of baptism and the miracle uh, of the sacrament that, that our Lord provides for us. Um, the sacrament of baptism is, is this wonderful gift. It's how we become Christians. And we know that the benefits of baptism are are multiple. It remits all of our sin, original and actual, the sin, the, the, the faults that we inherit from Adam and Eve, it heals that, but it also remits all the sins we've ever committed, our actual sins. And in place of the removal of those sins, it gives us a new life. It breathes new life into us. And because it incorporates us into Christ, well, it makes us children of God, because Jesus is the son of God, and we are in Christ, so we are sons with him. So baptism is this new birth. Jesus tells that to Nicodemus in John 3. He says, you have to be born again. Nicodemus says, what, do you want me to crawl back in? Jesus says, well, no, of course not. You can't do that. He says, you have to be born of water and the spirit. Well, that's what baptism is. And baptism, then, as a new birth, has a sort of enduring relevance to the Christian life. Because it immerses us into the story of Christ. It regenerates us. That's the prayer book language. It regenerates us. It gives us new life. And it obligates us to fight against the devil and against the world and against our flesh, concupiscence. Now, I've said this before, but I really am of the conviction that stories matter, that, that the stories that we place ourselves in determine how we live. We often conform our lives to the stories that we tell ourselves. Sometimes we don't even know what the stories are that we're telling ourselves. But I think in our society, many people tell themselves stories about the individual's triumph over sort of social or collective constraints or the opposite story, right? They tell the story of, of sort of collective triumph into a kind of utopia. But what's become even more prevalent now, I think, and perhaps the most dangerous story that the church has ever faced is that really there is no larger story in which we play a part, that that we're free to make our own stories. And that sounds really liberating at first, doesn't it? You get to make your own story. You're the author of your own fate and destiny. Except that what you're doing when you buy into that is you you are voluntarily enslaving yourself to the tyranny of chaos. So in baptism, we are immersed, literally immersed into a new story, the story of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel story of our redemption, right? Christ's cross, where he died to sin and destroyed its power. And because death had no hold over him, he was raised from the dead and lives for God. So baptism makes us part of that story. And St. Paul actually mixes metaphors a little bit in the reading today because um, he's using this idea of of baptism or, or dying and being risen. But he also says baptism plants us together with Christ in his, the likeness of his death. And because we're planted in the likeness of his death, we can then expect the new life of his resurrection. Now, the language St. Paul uses elsewhere to describe this reality of transferral is genealogical language. Um, so he talks in multiple places about being transferred from the genealogy of the first Adam. That is the Adam from the Garden of Eden, our primordial father, whose sin led to death. He, Jesus, or Paul talks about being transferred from that genealogy, that line, into a new line, a new Adam, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15.45, for example, St. Paul says, The first man, Adam, was made of a living soul. The last Adam was made a quickening spirit. Now, the benefit of joining this new genealogy is that we experience something called regeneration. Regeneration means being given a new life. This is what enables us to participate in the story of redemption. It's what enables us to play our part in that story as Christians. And of course, you know, the term Christian means little Christ. Um, So we get to play our part as imitating Christ. And regeneration is experienced at our baptism. In fact, it's clearly stated in the prayer book, right right after the baptism is performed, the child is baptized. And then the priest says to the congregation, seeing now, dearly beloved brethren, that this child is regenerate and grafted into the body of Christ's church. Let us give thanks unto almighty God for these benefits and with one accord, make our prayers unto him that this child may lead the rest of his life according to this beginning. There's no ambiguity there. That child is a member of the church. The the regeneration has happened in them. Whether or not they'll participate with that regeneration is another question, but it can be no doubt that child is a Christian. This new life is transformational for us. Right? When we're baptized, it doesn't just end. That's not the end of the story. That's the beginning of the story. We're baptized, and we're transformed by our baptism. St. Paul says this, Knowing that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin, for he that is dead is freed from sin. So in baptism, we have died and been brought to new life, just as the Israelites were in bondage in Egypt and were brought to freedom by passage through the waters of the Red Sea, so we, who were formerly in slavery to sin, are led to newness of life through the waters of regeneration in baptism. And so what's true of Christ becomes true of us, because we're in him, at least in germ, it's true of us. As Anglican theologian L.S. Thornton once said, "For us, the new has begun," and he means in baptism." Therefore, we shall be also united with the likeness of his resurrection. But this requires participation. It requires moral development. It requires hard work. It requires us to grow in holiness. Now, if you read the Old Testament, and you should if you haven't, you should read the Old Testament. Every covenant throughout the Old Testament has two parts. There's a promise that God gives to the person who receives the covenant and there's an obligation from that person. So go back to the very first covenant God makes with humanity in the Garden of Eden. Well, there's a promise. It's sort of implicit, but it is a promise, right? Adam and Eve get to be in the garden. They get to work and they get to tend the garden and they get to stay there. They get to walk with God. But there's an obligation, right? What's the obligation? Don't eat the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. It's just the one thing. They just had to do the one thing. Something we can sit Adam down when we get to heaven and maybe talk to him about that. So there's this first covenant in Eden. But the second covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, which was given to Abraham, has the same parts, right? There's a promise. God says, Abraham, I'll give you descendants, I'll give you land, and I'll give you blessing. And all you have to do is circumcise your male children and obey. You know, Abraham had to leave his home and follow God where God led him. And of course, then there's the Mosaic covenant, right? There's a promise and obligation. The promise is you get to stay in the promised land as God's people. But the obligation is you have to obey all these laws given to Israel through Moses. What about the Davidic covenant? That's the next one, right? The Davidic covenant, God makes a promise to David. He says, David, you're, you will have a descendant on the throne of Israel forever and ever. Obligation if you walk in my paths. Of course, they don't do that one well either, do they? So it should be no surprise when we get to the New Testament, the New Covenant, that there is promise and obligation as well, right? The promise of the New Covenant is that we get eternal life with God. We get to see the beatific vision, see our creator face-to-face, like St. Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 13. But there's an obligation, isn't there? We still have to to live up to our calling. And that actually happens at baptism. That obligation is formally conveyed to the person being baptized in the form of the vows that are taken in the prayer book. right? So um, the obligation is that we renounce the devil and his works. We renounce the pomp and glory of the world with all its covetous desires. And we renounce the sinful desires of the flesh so that we will not follow nor be led by them. And these vows are ancient. They're not something that somebody came up in the 16th or 17th century. These can actually be dated all the way back, some form of them, to Tertullian, who lived from 150 to 220. And we also have St. Cyril attest to them as well. He was in the 3rd and 4th century. So what are we doing when we renounce Satan? I mean, that kind of seems like an obvious one. You know, you just sort of expect if you're joining the church, you're not a big Satan fan. So why, are we, why do we make that an explicit thing that someone has to do? Well, think about it. This is the undoing of the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, right? It's the undoing of the sin of our primordial parents. They chose to rebel against Satan, or they chose to rebel with Satan against God. And so by rejecting his works, the devil's works, at our baptism, we reject the sin of pride, which is the root of all sins. It's the sin which caused the devil to fall. And it's the same sin that we participated in, when we listen to the words of the devil, that we could be like God. So we renounce the devil and his works. We renounce the world, the vain pomp and glory of the world, right? In that, we're refusing to settle for what's lesser. We want what's greater, right? According to St. John, in his first general epistle, we are to love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, then the love of the Father is not in him. Now, I've said this before, this doesn't mean that we hate those who are trapped in the world, we should actually have pity and love for them, but we do disavow the machinations and systems of the world that participate with the devil and his demons in opposition to God. And finally, we pledge or vow to renounce the sinful desires of our flesh, what many theologians call concupiscence, that kind of lust that we all have towards the things that we know we shouldn't. Get, those things that are bad for us, but we still want them. Caroline and the boys are in North Carolina, and yesterday I said, you know what I want for lunch? Taco Bell, right? That's not good for me, right? I shouldn't have gotten Taco Bell. It was a lapse in judgment. But there was something about it. I just couldn't, I just had to have my Taco Bell. So, So what we get that weakness in our flesh from the fall, right? That's original sin. We get that from Adam and Eve. It's the, so what St. Paul is telling us is that in baptism, the old man is crucified. And because of that, we renounce those lusts and pledges. We're, not, we're no longer enslaved by them. But of course, the Christian life is not just about saying no to things, right? That's often the perception that non-religious people have. Oh, you Christians always just say no to everything, right? That's not what, that's not what even our saying no is about, right? Our saying no is always freeing us so that we can say yes to what's good, Right, so, so the same baptismal rite, after we're done pl- renouncing the devil and the world and concupiscence, we actually vow to follow certain things. Right? So what do, we, what do we vow to follow? Well, the first thing is that we pledge to follow the Catholic faith as it's been handed down to us in the form of the Apostles Creed and the teachings of the church. So we assent to what the church says is true. But also we agree to obediently keep God's holy will and commandments and walk in the same all the days, all the days of our lives. And so I think at this juncture, it's vital. I mean, really vital that we take a step back and we think about the grace that we've been given in baptism and what we vowed in our baptism to do. I venture to guess most of you here were baptized as infants, not all of you, but most of you were baptized as infants. Um, I, unfortunately, was not. I was baptized as a teenager. Um, But, uh, you know, so when we say a phrase like remember your baptism to someone who was born as an infant, we don't mean remember the exact day that that happened because you probably can't. Um, But you've seen baptisms done, right? So every time you see a baptism done, it's a time for you and your heart to think about that baptismal covenant that you made or that was made by your godparent, right? Why do we keep holy water and fonts by the doors? right? It's to dip your fingers, make the sign of the cross. That's a way of remembering your baptism every time you come in. Of course, it sometimes becomes an empty ritual. You know, we don't think about it. We just do it mechanically. But that's why it's there. Remember your baptism. Why is that important? Well, you know, the first question in the prayer book catechism is, what is your name? And that name, at least traditionally, wouldn't have been bestowed upon you until you came to the church for your baptism. That was the old tradition. Right? So, where is your identity? Where does it come from? Does it come from your job, your sex, your class, your education? No. It comes from your baptism. That is who you are. Baptism. And so, we've been given these great gifts at baptism. We are Christians, right? We've been given that grace. And so, we should live up to that grace, participate with that grace, and resolve, like the prayer book says, to fight manfully against the devil, sin, and concupiscence so that we can embrace the faith that's been passed down by the saints so that we can obey God's law and we can obey what St. Paul tells us at the end of our reading this morning. Likewise, reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.